Let's have a word of prayer together. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and mercy to us. It's such a privilege just to be your children, to realize anew and afresh that you have provided abundantly in Jesus Christ. We just thank you for the chance that we have as, as a family together tonight to consider these things in your word and to be prepared for the days ahead. In particular, we thank you for a congregation of people who back us in prayer as we, as we go and as we minister in Scotland. We pray that Jesus Christ might be glorified in that which is accomplished. If it would please you, Lord, we pray that there may be a renewal of hearts by your word. You've promised that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish that which, for which it was sent. So therefore, we're very thankful for that confidence thankful that you go before us, thankful that you give us the instruction to walk in your way. So we just pray that you will just help that our gathering tonight might be a reinforcement of convictions that these people have developed by the study of your word, and then that we might be able to do the same thing in Scotland. We'll just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Those of you that are wondering, we uh, are just about packed and uh, just about ready to go, uh, and uh, we will be leaving um, uh, at 6.45 from SFO, um, and uh, so you can be praying for us as we get on the plane. I think the thing that, if, if I wish all along the way I could talk to you on the phone and uh, kind of let you know what some of the requests of our heart are. Uh, but I know one immediately, and that is that the Lord will give my wife a good night's sleep on the airplane. She doesn't sleep very well uh, on, on airplanes or cars or trains or anything else, and uh, so that makes it a little bit difficult uh, for her. Me, I don't have any problem. Uh, first place, I don't need as much sleep as she does. In second place, I can sleep anywhere at the drop of a hat. <laughs> so uh, I can go to sleep through some of my sermons sometimes, but <laughs> not really. But uh, in any event, we, uh, we really would appreciate prayer in that regard because it's really important for, uh, for her to be fresh and uh, to be able to be uh, ministry to the people there as well as myself. So be praying for that. We want to look again tonight in the book of Acts. Before we, before we do, though, let me just remind you that we are talking right now in our subject of discipleship. We're talking about the subject of stewardship in the book of Acts and the disciple. And uh, you'll recall that we talked a little bit about the background of stewardship and it's required of a steward that a man be found faithful. Uh, we took you to uh, some of the passages of Scripture that, uh, that talked about the stewardship of testimony that we have and the stewardship of time and talents and treasure. We looked at the parable of the talents, the parable of the pounds, which uh, Bob Campbell so adequately taught us Sunday night. And uh, we, we then pointed out, and I want to remind you of this, that in the book of Acts there are historical events. We always have to be careful not to, not to be dogmatically teaching doctrine from the book of Acts because it is merely a record of what happened. And uh, sometimes there are directives 
that are given in the book of Acts that are apropos for every circumstance, but there are also things given in the book of Acts that uh, were, were confined uh, to decisions that were made in the early church under special circumstances and have nothing to do with church order uh, or with even the pattern of uh, service or giving or anything like that uh, as taught later in the epistles. For example, in the book of Acts, we are given very scant information concerning the appointment of church officers, per se. There was very little in the way of organization in the early church. Uh, Paul, uh, when he returned his second missionary journey, going to certain places, appointed elders in every city. We're given that information, but not given any information as to what criteria he used for the appointing of elders. We know that there was another group uh, that often are referred to as deacons in Acts chapter 6 that also were appointed. Uh, and they were appointed with the responsibility of temporal matters to free the apostles uh, for their responsibility. But as far as, as uh, the pattern of, of what they were to do and so on, uh, that's a very limited thing in the book of Acts. You get to the epistles, though, and there's much concerning the elders and the deacons and concerning other church um, uh, responsibilities and offices. Uh, there's very little said in the book of Acts about the pastor, as an example. And for that reason, there's some people who who uh, get involved in trying to pattern the New Testament church after the book of Acts rather than after the epistles that say, uh, look, there's, there's not very many uh, real instructions in the book of Acts concerning pastors per se. They usually don't look far enough because the concept of pastor elder and pastor teacher uh, are both found uh, in, the, in the book of uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, and, um, and seems to give us some idea of a pattern. But you just have to realize that when you're dealing with the book of Acts, you are dealing with history. And uh, we have to go to the epistles to find out whether or not uh, these are things that are really nailed down or not. And so we, we uh, turned last week uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And uh, we want tonight uh, to go a little bit further in this text, if we could. Acts chapter 2. We won't take time to read it again. We will just read verses 44 and uh, 45. And it says, And all that believed were together and had all things common. That was one of those things that is not necessarily uh, to be done throughout the church age. Uh, this was something that was done uniquely in the church in Jerusalem. We have no evidence in the epistles that it was something that was to be carried on. But there were some other things. And, of course, the spirit of this was the concept and the idea of sacrifice. And that, of course, is taught all the way through Scripture in regard to the matter of the stewardship of our money. And it says in verse 45, they sold their possessions and their goods. They were sacrificial. And uh, this grew, as we read in the next verse, it grew out of a concern for others. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They recognized that some didn't have as much as others, and there, there was, in a real sense, a redistributing of the wealth at that particular time. Many of the people were very, very poor. Some of the people were very, very rich. And voluntarily, remember, it was voluntarily, and sacrificially, these people, in a very real sense, pooled their resources. But they did it on the basis of concern. Now, that's a concept of stewardship that is taught elsewhere as well in the Word of God. For instance, look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and uh, verse 17. 
But whosoever hath this world's good. Now the word good there is bios, or the uh, concept of livelihood. Whoever hath this world's livelihood and seeth his brother have need. Remember that there are several words in the Greek text for see. And uh, this particular word has the idea of to see with, with real purpose and with real interest. It's a matter of closely examining. So it says that you have this world's livelihood. In other words, you're earning a living and you, you have enough to keep your head above water and, and uh, able to have food on your table. And uh, you, with interest and concern, because you're looking for it, see your brother with a special need. And if you shut up your compassions from him, the fascinating thing is that the word shutteth there uh, is in the aorist tense, which indicates that it's in a point of time that the individual sees the need in a very real sense, like the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite seeing the man in the gutter, turn your head the other way. You shut up your bowels of compassion. In the point of time, at the point of need, you say, I can't do anything. And you immediately disassociate yourself from the situation. If you shut up your, your compassions from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word. Let's not go around telling people, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's not really love. You, anybody can do that. Don't love in word neither in tongue, but do it in deed and truth. How do we do it in deed and truth? When we see somebody with a need, we reach out to try to help them. Do what we can, even sacrificially. We do it on the basis of need. All right, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Remember when we studied Philippians, we said a little thing over and over again in this fourth chapter. In fact, we said it in the first and second chapters too, because the same subject came up. That when you care, you share. When you care, you share. Don't ever forget it. You say, well, I don't share. I got this and that and the other thing. Well, you don't care. That's a good test. When you care, you share. Period. That's what Paul said here in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I rejoice, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Remember, uh, I, we keep going back to all these things we learned in the past, but uh, you, you realize that we studied some time ago um, the subject of worry. And we demonstrated that there is a right kind of worry and there's a wrong kind of worry. In other words, the word is the same. The word here for care is the same word where it says, in, uh, it said, uh, take no thought for tomorrow. The word thought there is the same word as we have here. It's not a different word. It's not a unique word. It's just the point is that when there are selfish cares, they are not legitimate. When there are unselfish cares, they are legitimate. It's just as clear as that. There's nothing wrong with you caring for someone else. But you see, in your caring, you're not to project into the future. In other words, you can care today about someone's need, which means you'll probably share with them, but you don't worry about tomorrow. So it's, it's how far ahead you think. Take, take no thought for tomorrow what you're going to put on. But you can take thought for today. And the alternative to worry, of course, is prayer. 
God wants you to share your concerns with him. But the same word is used here. And then, so he says, your care of me has flourished again. It blossomed like a flower, of which you were also mindful, but you lacked opportunity. These people always did want to help Paul, but they didn't really have the chance to do it. But as soon as the chance came, because they cared, they automatically shared. You know what happened here. Epaphroditus brought a special gift to the Apostle Paul at the risk of his own life. Epaphroditus was probably the pastor of these people at Philippi. And he brought the gift to him, presented it to him. And Paul tells them, I appreciate it. He also said, not as though I was in any special kind of need, not, a, not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He wasn't showing an ungrateful spirit. He was just uh, reminding those people and reminding us that you can't make God poor by withholding. You can't make God rich by giving. That God takes care of his children. You want to share the blessing, then you share with, with uh, the Apostle Paul and with others. If you don't want to share the blessing, uh, then uh, that's your problem. But God will take care of his servants. He'll never suffer the righteous to go hungry. You can be certain of that. And so he, he's thankful here for their concern. But notice, to get back to our point, they cared, so they shared. They gave because they recognized a need. A fascinating balance to this is the fact that we are told clearly in 1 Corinthians that we are never to give out of necessity. That is, we are not to give just because there's a need. There is a combination of forces that are involved. There is the, the need which moves our heart. That may be somewhat emotional. But then there is the prompting of the Spirit of God in regard to that need that really regulates what we shall give, when we shall give, how much we should give, and how we should handle it. The Spirit of God directs us in that regard. We're never, though, to give just because somebody makes an emotional appeal. That is not a motivation for giving. But we're to do it cheerfully. We should never be talked out of our money. And when people start asking for money, and then keep asking, and then keep asking some more, well, then put your wallet back, because it's impossible under those circumstances to properly give. What you need to do is evaluate what God would have you do, and, and Scripture even says you should do it ahead of time. Discerning Christians wouldn't let anybody talk them into anything. What they would do is they would prayerfully consider what God would have them do. And so either prepare ahead of time or after you've heard the emotional appeal, go home and pray about it and give later. But on the spot, at that moment, somebody trying to raise a great deal of money, don't respond simply to the need. But there is a sense in which there is a response to a need. So get the balance and don't get overbalanced. Always keep balance. That's the right thing. Verse 14 of chapter 4 of Philippians. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did share with my affliction. If you care, you share. They cared in verse 10. They shared in verse 14. And then also in verse 15, And now Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me as concerning giving and receiving, but she only. What a wonderful commendation of this church. And these people were poor. Remember he told the Corinthian church? He said, why, the Macedonian Christians first gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave their gifts? 
They were exemplary in that giving because they gave out of their poverty. And you out of your abundance have been slow. But they gave out of their poverty and responded accordingly. When you care, you share. Well, now, in Acts chapter 2, the aftermath of what happened in in relationship, not only because of the stewardship, that, of course, was only a small part of it, but nevertheless, because this was right and everything else was right, there was worship, there was unity, there was hospitality, there was praise, and people were saved. And the result was that there was a real thrust of the gospel in that very first group of people in the early church. When you come to Acts chapter 4, you have another something that has arisen. In Acts chapter 4, the persecution has begun. Third chapter of Acts, you remember, there was the healing of the lame man at the gate beautiful. You recall that the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter uh, and, uh, his, and John uh, ministered. They were thrown in jail as a result of uh, the uh, crying out of the crowd and so on. And uh, they, they, there was great unity that came as a result of the persecution in the early church. And if you look, if you look at verse 29, you'll see these words. That after their release from prison, their prayer was this. And notice, they didn't pray for protection. They, they prayed for two things, but not for protection. Here they are being persecuted. It says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And right away you say, and Lord, keep me safe. Isn't that what we pray? Notice what they said. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they might speak thy word. First thing they asked for was for holy boldness, for courage to continue to speak the word in spite of the persecution. Second thing they asked for was a continued confirmation of their message. Verse 30, by stretching forth thine hands to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. But now in verse 32, we see again that there was this voluntary sharing of the early church. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and one soul. Now mind you, that in itself could be another principle that we, we could talk about. A united people don't have any problem with finances. They just don't. When people are united in one spirit, and remember that that was one of the one of the two basic considerations that Christ gave to his disciples in regard to an effective church, an effective ministry. Number one, they'll know that your disciples buy your love. Number two, he said, Lord, in John 17. He said, Father, make them one that the world may know that they're my children and that I am their, their Lord and that we are one and all of the rest of it. One of the keys to effectiveness is that kind of unity that's so needed. And that uh, perhaps is not a specific, uh, is specific in the area of stewardship, but I think it's a very, very important thing. The, the evidence of that was the attitude they had toward finances. Notice, they were one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own. Now, how they carried that out is optional. Understand? In other words, it says after that, and they had all things common. That is, they pooled all their resources. That is optional. Nowhere taught in the epistles, nowhere taught beyond the church in Jerusalem. It is an optional thing. There may be times where such a thing would be helpful. 
If the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States were under persecution and under certain conditions, it might be wise for Christians to get together and pool their resources so that everybody could be cared for in a communal type of situation. It might be possible to do that. It is not a dictate of Scripture. It is a possibility. You understand the difference? But the first part is not optional. The thing that caused them to have all things in common is a non-option as far as the Christian is concerned. And it's this, that every person refused to say that that which he possessed was his own. That is a principle of stewardship. And it's taught throughout Scripture. The Scripture even goes so far as to say that you are not your own. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are Christ. You don't even belong to you as a Christian. That you belong to God. And so the early church, uh, in, in, as we already quoted in the church of Macedonia, in the church of Philippi, they first of all gave themselves to the Lord, and then the giving became an automatic thing. When you come to the place where you realize the principle of ownership, it makes a whole lot of difference as far as your life is concerned. James chapter 1, verse 17. Let's just look at some of these passages in the epistles that reinforce this concept of ownership. Book of James chapter 1 and verse 17. Where does it come from? Every good gift and every perfect gift complete gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning. You know uh, I'll often have people say well you know, I don't need God. I'll tell you I am a self-made man. He's a self-made man and he worships his creator. Um and uh, he's got this idea, you know, that I can get along with God. I don't owe God anything. Everything I've gotten, I have worked for. Boy, I have done it, blood, sweat, and tears, and all the rest. And nobody can tell me it belongs to God. And I, I, I often think that the way to approach a person like that would be say, great, great. Tell you what, prove it to me. Just prove it to me. Because... Uh, God made the air, and uh, the air that you breathe is a part of the gift of God, and the physical strength and all the rest is, but you can just start, you just use a simple one, like air. Say, from now on, for, for even a day, just show me how much you can do without using any of God's air. You know, the guy, if he was really stubborn, might try and a minute later, you'd pick him up off the floor and dust him off, you know. And he'd have to try again. The poor fellow would wear himself out in a hurry that way. And, and uh, it wouldn't be a very healthy experience for him. Why, you can't get along without God's gift of air. Man does his share to pollute it. But you still got to have it. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when man goes outside this atmosphere in which we live... He's got to carry his own atmosphere with him. He cannot operate on the atmosphere of that which is out there in outer space. Because God created man for the earth. 
That doesn't mean he shouldn't go out there. But God says, my goodness, if you want to go out there, you're going to have to take a little bit of earth with you. Because there's no way you can operate outside this sphere unless you take your atmosphere with you. You need God's air. You just try to live without it. And if that, was, if that isn't enough, then you can start going into a million of other things. God gives you life. He breathed into the first man, the, into his nostrils, the very breath of life. And there's a very real sense in which God is the life giver. And that life itself comes from God. And it's fascinating to realize that in the book of Revelation, Christ is given, is, he has in his hand the keys of Hades and of death. So if he has the keys of death, then he also has the key of life. That is, uh, by virtue of the fact that the key of death is in his hand, he is also the one that has life. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's never forget that. And so every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. The most important gift of all is the gift of salvation. And so what he talks about in the next verse is, Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. That's the very best gift of all as far as God is concerned. That's even better than air. Air you can get along without and just die. Salvation you can't get along without or you die eternally. And so therefore that's one of the good gifts that he gives. But that's only a sample. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above. Look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24. In verse 1, the earth is the Lord's. How much of it? The whole thing belongs to him. Remember in the book of Revelation, there was a scroll sealed with seven seals. And the angels of heaven were weeping because they said, who is worthy? There's no one who is worthy to open this book. That is, the saints in heaven were saying, no one is worthy. And it was a very sad experience. John himself says, I wept. As I realized there was no one that was worthy. You know what that scroll was? That was a title deed to the earth. And there's nobody who's, who is worthy to open that scroll. Until the lamb, who, the lion I should say, who was like a lamb that had been slain. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? The lion and the lamb. Christ was both. He stepped forward, and they rejoiced, and all heaven rejoiced, because he alone was worthy. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's. It is his by right of creation. It is his by right of redemption. And there is a day coming where he will claim his property. Right now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. But he's a usurper. The earth is not the devil's, and it never will be the devil's. He's a land grabber, but he's going to lose. And Christ is going to take the title deed to the world. And so therefore the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Why? He hath founded upon the seas, established on the flood, and so on and so forth. It goes on and talks about ascending into the hill of the Lord. Look at Haggai chapter 2. Haggai. Oh, my goodness sakes. Got to wait till November 1st, or the first Sunday in November, to talk about Haggai. But I got to get a little one in here. That's a good book. 
That's a tr- we, we should have sung the Minor Prophets. Haggai is a great book. Listen to what it says. Haggai 2 and verse 8. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. This belongs to me. They were building, of course, the house of God, building the temple of God. You remember, the people were a little bit upset because this temple was not as elaborate as Solomon's temple. God says, all the silver in the world is mine. All the gold in the world is mine. If I want a big house, I can build a big house. That's no big problem. But what he really goes on to say then is that ultimately, he's going to build it right. Someday he's not going to build it out of the poverty of the people that have come back from captivity, but rather he's going to build a great temple in a future day. And so therefore, he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. Look, if you will, at 2 Corinthians 8. Several good stewardship passages in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. We quoted this a few minutes ago. Now you got the text. And this they did, not as we had hoped. Now the word hope there means expected, literally. Not as we had expected. In other words... Uh, Paul was looking for them to give, but they had something to take care of first. And they did, not as we had expected, but first gave themselves to the Lord and unto us, how? By the will of the man asking for the money. Is that right? No. By the will of God, they gave themselves first to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We started out with this. Verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Now, in this passage in Acts chapter 4, and let's look at it again. You'll notice that the concept, the biblical concept of sacrifice biblical concept of concern for others is also found in this passage, just like they were in the Acts 2 passage, but along with it, the principle of ownership. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither any of them had uh, any of them that, that any of his, the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there among them them that lacked. Again, because they had a genuine concern for the needs of others. Nobody had lack. I'll tell you, the church of today could learn a lot concerning that matter. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, mind you, once again, it was according to need, it was sacrificial, but there was the added principle of ownership. And then came a positive illustration of it. Notice, verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted the son of 
consolation, paracletes, the same word that's used for the comforter, the Holy Spirit, in uh, the uh, upper room discourse, and uh, the same word that is used for advocate in First uh, John chapter 2, where it speaks of Christ being the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the son of comfort, the son of consolation, the, the son of, of helpfulness. You know, this, this fellow Barnabas is an unusual guy. He, first of all, had a personal ministry of the Apostle Paul. That personal ministry of the Apostle Paul was, was simply that the Jews wanted to kill him because he'd become a Christian. The Christians shunned him because they were afraid he wasn't really a Christian. And right in the middle was Paul, having been trained by the Holy Spirit in Arabia. And here's Barnabas. And Barnabas says, look, he's my brother, son of consolation. Later on, John Mark had been a little bit of trouble. They reached the coast of Pamphylia. John Mark said, I want to go home to Mama. And he ran home to Mama. And uh, only went half the journey. In fact, hardly got started on the crazy journey. They just reached the, the land that was, where things were going to begin to get tough and real missionary metal was going to be found. He looked, took one look at that steep hillside he had to climb up right off the coast of Pamphylia, going right up to, uh, to uh, Lystra and and uh, Derby and those places, and he says, no way, and he went home. Later on, Barnabas, who really played second fiddle to Paul all the way through their first missionary journey, it's just Paul and Barnabas. Paul did all the talking. Paul did most of everything in the way of leadership. Barnabas just was sort of an aid and a help along the way. Didn't say much, didn't do much, but I'm sure Paul couldn't have gone along without him. And all of a sudden, when they got ready to go to the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, Say, Paul, I wonder, could we fit John Mark into this? And Paul says, No way. It's interesting. Uh, this is off the subject. But you got, the tenses that, that are used of the verbs in, the, in both cases, both for concerning what Paul said and what Barnabas said, showed that they had an absolutely different perspective on the issue of John Mark. Barnabas said... Don't you suppose we could start out with Mark? I mean, couldn't we just, you know, maybe we got started, he'd go a little further this time, you know? It's kind of that idea. Just an encouraging thing. And Paul says, we can't continue with Mark. In other words, he saw the, Barnabas saw Mark and saw the need of the man. Paul saw the missionary journey. And Paul recognized that his responsibility was to have the journey and do the job and, and have it complete. He saw the big picture. Barnabas saw Mark in his need. And that's the difference between the two. And the scripture says that their contention was sharp. They, you know, let the old sin nature just rise up a little bit in the process. But as a result of that, Barnabas said, my responsibility is to Mark. Paul said, my responsibility is the missionary journey. And so they separated. And some people make a big deal about the fact that we never hear of Barnabas again. We didn't hear much of him before, except in situations like this. The thing that we do hear is later on, Paul says, Say, send John Mark to me, for now he is profitable unto me. Barnabas did his job. And so did Paul. That was the first major church split. But they both did the job, so what are we going to worry about? You know? Praise the Lord. Because both of them did a job for the Lord. But this was the man we're talking about here. But this is the first time that he rises to the top. 
It says that he's the son of consolation. He's a Levite of the country of Cyprus. One of those, excuse me, one of those transplanted Jews. When Alexander went to Cyprus, he took uh, some Jews with him. They were in high governmental position. There was a synagogue in Cyprus. And, uh, and Barnabas was a member of the tribe of Levi. He was of the priestly line. And he had become a Christian probably on the day of Pentecost. And it says that he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He laid it at the apostles' feet. He came and just, he sold his property. Now what it was, how much money was involved, isn't even given. Because it's really not too important as far as God is concerned. Because God says the silver is mine, the gold is mine. It's not the amount that matters with God, it's the attitude of heart. What an exemplary man this man Barnabas was in his ministry of giving and stewardship. Right after him came the copycats, Ananias and Sapphira, negative influence. But a certain man named Ananias, which means Yahweh is gracious, and Sapphira, which meant beautiful, and probably influential people. It was his wife, and they sold a possession. Now, we're not told precisely what it involved. We know it involved land because it later on says that they'd sold the land. But they had a possession. It could have been there was a house on the land. It could have been it was a very, uh, it was an estate. We don't know. But we do know that they sold a possession and kept back part of the price. Right away people say, ah, so the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they didn't give all. Is that right? No. That's not it at all. Follow the story. They kept back part of the price, his wife also knowing of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now you see, we're, we have to read between the lines here. We're not given the whole narrative. It is apparent from the next phrase that what they did was they came they said, we have a possession, we're going to sell it and give all the money to the Lord. But when they sold it, they kept back a part of it. And they were pretending that they had given their all when actually they had kept back part of it. How do we know that? Well, look at the next verse. While it remained, was it not thine own? They never had to give that. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Even after they sold it, they still had the option of giving whatever they wished to give. Why hast thou conceived this in thine heart that thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God? What did they lie about? They lied because they said, we did the same thing Barnabas did. Barnabas sold his land, gave the whole thing to the apostles. We did the same thing. Aren't we good people? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Incidentally, this was a very common pra practice. They just very quickly would bury the dead. And uh, not only was it sanitary to do it that way, but it also was to keep them from ceremonial defilement. You've got to remember, these fellows were, were Jews as background. And it was about the space of three hours afterward when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Nobody told her yet her husband was dead. Peter answered her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. 
How much do you sell the land for? And she says, yea, for so much. Again, we're not told how much. The point was, she too lied. Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Behold, the feet of them who have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down immediately at his feet, and died. And the young men came in, found her dead, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. There were really five results that took place as a result of the incident of Ananias and Sapphira. There was purity, there was fear, there was power, there were new converts, and there was unity, down in verse 12. God did a great thing. Aren't you glad that the book of Acts records history and not what is normative? I wonder if God just made it a principle that every time someone pretended to give their all when they actually weren't giving their all, if they were to die, we would, well, we'd probably have a smaller church in one big hurry. You know, incidents like this, though, have been known to happen during a time of unusual blessing in the midst of God's people, where people begin to pretend and are hypocritical about their consecration to Christ. They've been known to very suddenly pass on. And I think we should be very, very careful lest we think that God could not repeat this. Maybe not normative. The early church had, there was a reason in the sovereignty of God for having judgment come to the house of God so very quickly. But remember, God says in his word, judgment must first begin at the house of God. And also in 1 Corinthians 11, that if we do not judge ourselves, number one, judging ourselves in the sense that you and I having personal examination, not of each other, but of ourselves as we come to the Lord's table, and then judge ourselves with proper authority under the ministry of the eldership of the, of the local church. If we do not judge sin that is evident in our midst, that is dealing with it with church discipline, we fail to do that, then God himself may have to step in and bring forth judgment. In this case, it was very sudden, very quick. But it shows you, see, doesn't it? That first of all, you can talk about God owning all your possessions. And that's easy. Talk is cheap. In Barnabas's case, he sold everything and laid at the apostles' feet. He had such honor from people for that kind of consecration that Ananias and Sapphira see him and they say, wow, you know, that's really the thing to do. That's the end thing. So they sold their property and laid it down at the apostles' feet. I'm about to learn something I've always wanted to learn. That's uh, this business about British pounds and all the rest. Half my illustrations in, in uh, biographies and all the rest of them, missionary biographies, have the money in pounds, and I never really understood it too much, so we'll have to find out when we're over in that country. But there's a story that, that uh, Spurgeon used to tell, and uh, so we'll change it to dollars for the sake of what it's worth, all right? Uh, a woman came to Spurgeon, and, he's, and again, I don't remember the exact amount, but, but said, uh, Dr. Spurgeon, I have just received word that I have 
an inheritance of $1,000. And I want you to know that I'm going to give half of that to the Lord's work. I'm going to give it to your church and to the ministry that you have. $500. I'm going to give you half of my inheritance. So a few days later, the woman came in to Dr. Spurgeon, and she looked very, very sad. And she says, Dr. Spurgeon, I have a problem. She says, the inheritance wasn't what I had expected. Spurgeon, with his usual pessimism, fully expected her to say that she'd only received $500 and that the money that he'd been praying for was only going to come to $250 when actually, actually he needed much more. And so he said to her, well, that's all right. How much was the inheritance? Oh, Dr. Spurgeon, the inheritance was $10,000. And I can't give God half of that. (laughs) You see, giving half of $1,000 is relatively easy. Or giving all of $1,000 is relatively easy. But when it actually turns out that God adds another digit, then it becomes impossible. You see, when you have this amount of money, then you see you have money. But when you get like this, money has you. And there's a lot of difference. But when a person understands the principle of ownership, the amount no longer matters. Face it, it all belongs to God anyway. Some people are having this struggle, I've talked with some, in regard to to faith promise. I know one man in particular who stuck his neck out a mile long for faith promise. Figuring, as he told me, that God could never come through with that much anyway, so it was no harm, you know. No harm done at all. But lo and behold, from a totally unexpected source, the money came in. And the problem was he had given it to God ahead of time. If he had known he was going to get it, he never would have done it. But the fact that he didn't know it, now it has him stuck. What in the world am I going to do? You see, we face this dilemma. Why? There's only one reason we face it. We don't understand the principle of ownership. We don't understand that everything we have belongs to God. It really does. And that God, in a sense, hands it back to us and says, here it is. Have you ever seen that cartoon? What I'd love to do, I've got to have Dale McComb do this for me, get a hold of it again. I must have it in my file somewhere and have a set of overheads made of it. It is so good. What it says is, uh, I think conservative Baptists put this out. Give credit where credit is due. It says that God gave a man ten apples. Got to get them all in here. That's uh, five. There we are. God God gave a man ten apples. And uh, I don't have this entirely right, but... um, He gave him three for shelter and three for food and two for himself. 
and he gave, he gave him one to give back to God. And the man bought the, the shelter, and he bought the food, and he spent the two for himself, and then he looked at this last apple. And the, the, it's so graphic when you see it in pictures, because you're turning these pages. And it says that this particular apple happened to be the biggest, reddest, and juiciest of them all. It always is after the rest are spent, you know. And he says, so the man ate the apple, and then you turn the page, and gave God the core. And there's the picture of the most awful-looking core you ever saw in your life. He had nibbled that thing down to nothing. Isn't that what we do so often? Instead of recognizing that all we have, that all we are, that all we could ever hope to be really is because of what God has done for us, we turn right around and give God nothing but the core. God condemned a fig tree, which was representative of the nation of Israel. He condemned a fig tree. Why? Because it had nothing but leaves. It had no fruit. Now, I'm not saying the sum total of fruit in the Christian's life is involved with the stewardship of his money. I want to tell you something, my friend. That's certainly a part of it. God says, in fact, didn't Paul, it was Paul that said that he wanted the people in, in Philippi to give that fruit may abound to their account. In a very real sense, Scripture uses, uses the concept and the idea of money not so much as, as fruit as he does seed, which then brings forth fruit. For he says that if you sow a little, you reap a little. He's talking there about giving money. And so God wants us to learn to give him more than the core, but realize it all belongs to him. But when he puts it into our hands, it's there as a stewardship. He does expect us to pay our rent. He does expect us to pay our bills. He does expect us to, to, to pay for uh, the, the, the uh, lights and the heat and, and uh, the food for the family. And he even expects us to spend some of that on things that are meaningful and pleasurable to us. And there's nothing sinful about that. Paul says, I learned how to be a base. I've learned how to abound. And praise God for those that learn how to do both, either or both at any particular time. And it's a real test of whether he understands God's ownership if he's able to be content even when he loses everything he has or still content when he's got everything. See? And never selfish in either position. But you see, the thing that happens so very often is that we get so caught up in this thing that we fail to realize that the concept of giving taught throughout the Old Testament is that of the first fruits, not the leftovers. That as you are a reckoning and accounting what you will do in the expenditure of your monies, it is vital and important that you put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You've got to get that into perspective. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have that first, seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, I believe completely firmly with all my heart, without any equivocation, in spite of the fact that I know some of you disagree with me. 
I do not believe that tithing is taught in the New Testament. Some of you heard me say that before. If you're going to teach tithing, get it straight, all right? If you want to believe in tithing, do it. But remember, the tithe is 30%, not 10%. They were plural all the way through. There were three tithes, and it amounted to the tithe of the first fruit, it amounted to a temple tax, and it amounted to one other tithe. Then when you figure it all out, it averages out at about 30% per year. So the fine, if you want to tithe, you go ahead and tithe, but don't talk to me about 10%. All right? Now that is one quick way to cure people of believing in tithing in the New Testament. You know, that's... That's just a quick way to handle it. There's a lot more that can go into the teaching, but that's, that's, a, that's the sure way. Tithing was given by Abraham before the law, but it was tithes. He gave Melchizedek tithes of all he possessed. Not a tithe, but tithes. So therefore it was more than 10%, it was at least 20. Okay? Because two tithes, you have to have two in order to get the S on the end, it was at least 20%. And he did it voluntarily. But the Jews were required under law to give what amounted to the equivalent of 30% of their giving. The idea of tithing is never taught in the epistles. But believe you me, giving is. And giving under grace has a far greater responsibility than under law. Because under law, this was income tax. Under grace... It is a matter of ownership and stewardship. And God owns everything you have. And the early church understood that so completely. Now here you've got a bunch of people. You know, if you think that evangelical Christians today who talk about their tithes and offerings and all of that, you know, if you think they've got a problem, can you imagine here's a guy who is a Jew. And all his life he has had it drilled into his head. You give the tithe on the first fruit, you give the temple tax, you give this, you give that, you give the other thing, and all the way down the line it averages out about 30% of your income. He'd been taught that from his youth up. He'd been taught that God, that, that he could never have a fellowship with God if he didn't have that handled. He was taught that in the book of Malachi that God actually cut the people off and gave them a, a drought in their land because they'd forgotten to get back to that business of tithing. He'd been taught this from his youth up. And all of a sudden, he accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior. What would you expect? You'd expect Barnabas to, being a Levite, you would expect Barnabas, of all people, to sell his land and give 10%, right? And then later on the other, the other parts, and at least give about 30% of it. What did he do? He gave it all. In the early church, and then reinforcing the epistles, is not a matter of giving a percentage amount to God. Though if you wish to do that, the Lord bless you, that's fine. That's it between you and the Lord. But if you're going to give, don't give 10%, all right? 11 or 9, but not 10. Because that way you won't be thinking in terms of, of, of confusing it with the legal restrictions involved in the nation of Israel, which we're not under at all from the standpoint of an amount. But God gives us a responsibility to recognize what? His ownership. He owns it all. You don't have a thing. And if he speaks to your heart about giving half of it, should be no problem. It's his anyway. He just asked for half back of that which is his anyway. And since it belongs to him, don't hedge. Let him have it. If he wants it all, give it all. If he wants 10%, give him 10%. If he wants 5%, give him 
but be sensitive to the will of God involved in giving. That's the thing that's involved in the matter of stewardship. It's this idea of ownership. And that's what we need to have our hearts gripped with in these days. Well, the results, in the, as I've already stated then, in this matter, again, you see stewardship intricately linked to that which took place, bringing results. Purity, fear, power, new converts, and unity. The aftermath of a united people who dared to give. I believe that God gave us these two back-to-back examples in this particular context so that we would understand the principle and the concept of God's ownership. When it's in your hand, it's yours to determine before God what he wants you to do. But for goodness sakes, don't fake it like Ananias and Sapphira. Recognize his ownership and give accordingly. Let's pray together, shall we? Now, Father, we have talked tonight about your ownership, about sacrifice. We've talked about the matter of giving according to need, recognizing the needs around us and just being available to you. Lord, we we realize that it's so important that we practice exactly what we preach. Help us, Lord, to never hold back from, from giving everything we have in the way of strength, and the way of possessions, for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live our lives sacrificially and to to realize that there are times where you allow us to abound. Help us to abound without being selfish and without being possessive. At the same time, Lord, help us to be willing to, to just surrender everything we have if that's what your wish is, and just give it all. Just like Abraham placed Isaac on the altar. Lord, we pray that our self-surrender to you will be evident in that which we bring in the way of gifts. We pray that we won't just bring you the core, but that we'll truly be, be faithful in giving precisely what you wish us to give. And help us, Lord, to be so sensitive to your will that we'll never wonder, we'll never hold back, that we'll be hilarious givers. We'll give you the praise for it. We ask it in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.